Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanmore Major. This episode, we're continuing John Coldwell's Desperate Voyage and we're on Chapter 7. Chapter 7 Adventure From Perlas to Galapagos, there are 900 miles of ocean to cross. I have been told in Panama that sailing craft had taken anywhere from seven days to eternity to make it. That was about all the actual information I had. Even men who had sailed over this vexatious stretch of water couldn't lay their finger on anything much more than could help me. When they talked about it, they looked off at the ocean and frowned. Work into the Galapagos from the east, they said. Don't get west of them. You can't fight back against the trades in the current. So that was my plan. Work south till I could shape up for the Galapagos by steering into them to westward. Someone said that once I got to the Galapagos, the rest of the voyage to Australia was all downhill. The trade winds were the thing. It was the trade winds I was after. And as vexations piled up on themselves, I looked toward the trades as a salvation worth fighting for. To limit the conditions of weather in the area between Panama and the southeast trades to such a simple word as bad or terrible is crass understatement. What makes it bad here is that disturbances are general rather than particular. No type of weather is dominant, rather one encounters every conceivable annoyance, not to mention their combination. I had been in one gale and a squall in the Perlas, and I had thought them bad at the time. But when I nosed out into Panama Gulf and further, Pandora's box threw wide its lid and hell was a poppin' from the start. I didn't meet any really severe weather conditions, that is, harsh storms, but I should rather have the weather flay me a week at a time than waft me along for a day of sailing than do what it did. Almost every night I was double reefed at the main and hove to. Otherwise, I was in a flat calm or in a wind too gentle to enable me to make effective headway against the current. Sandwiched between these three perplexing weather habits was the unpredictable appearance of tropical squalls. Usually, their only indication was the whir of wind or the cry of a rent sail. These waters were undoubtedly the sharpest bone a sailor can have in his throat. Three uncongenial ocean currents meet here and claw at each other under the keel. There is the Mexican current, dropping in from the north with its cool flood from Unalaska and the coasts of Japan. Out of the west comes the equatorial countercurrent, torrid and forceful, bringing tropic warmth and tropic life with it. Up from the Antarctic along the South American coast flows the cold stream called the Humboldt Current, when these varying waters meet, the same thing happens that can only happen when brunette, redhead and blonde come seeking the same man. In the midst of these varying upsets, an unsteady, one minute vicious and one minute calm southwest wind added the final touch of mayhem. For it was the southwest that I wanted to ply, straight into the eye of the wind. So I had to tack, first to south and then to west, fighting the current which was trying to suck me back to Panama, and it was succeeding at times. Some days found me hours on end in nerve-wracking calms. Then a gale of wind would prod me in the ribs, causing me to heave to and fall back for the most of the night. The morning would find me in a dead calm, beneath a deluge of rain and rumbling clouds, or in an electric storm, 
the sky frightful with lightning. On the first afternoon out, I was in a rising south wind, with one reef tucked in and pondering whether I should drop sail and tie in the other, when suddenly the wind dropped away to a void. Great, smooth rollers ran under me and away to sternward. In twenty minutes, a behemoth of a cloud swept down on me from directly behind. I could hear it talking as it came. By rights, I should have doused all sail and gone below, but I was too desperate to make a few feet of southwesting. All day, I had beaten to and fro across the same acre of water, into the same forceless headwind. A stern wind was a boon. I held to my hat and sat tight. The squall roared up and very crassly gave me the equivalent of a kick in the pants. In a moment, I was flying before it at seven knots. It was just what I wanted. Imagine footing it at that clip and ploughing head-on into the oncoming rollers. Pagan was flying off the top of one and into the centre of another, a great spray cannonading upward and wetting the rigging to the masthead. Waves of water sluiced along the decks and spilled over the stern. A thump would herald her fall from the back of a smoking wave and a thud would tell me that she was ploughing into the base of another. At one stage I grew a little apprehensive and determined to bring her about and shorten all sail. Nuts to it, we're going somewhere, I called out and let her fly. The squall lasted about 40 minutes, then fell away to nothing, leaving me in a highly confused sea. The next day, I saw my first tide rip. In a moment, out of nowhere, the sea became an acreage of numberless, cone-shaped bouncing wavelets. It rose and fell in an endless dance, licking at the sky with unnumbered fingers. I sat looking at something I had never seen before. It was amazing to see the uncanny ellipsis. It actually jumped on board, but ran harmlessly out of the self-bailing cockpit. Under the keel, two contrary currents had met, and redhead and blonde were tearing out each other's hair. Another incident was unique in its way. The day had been one of weak and vacillating ladies' winds. I had used the engine several hours during the long hot day in a futile search for a breeze. In mid-afternoon I gave up and decided to do with what I had, but as night drew on I found myself quite suddenly in a gale, in fact so suddenly as to be unable to pull down sail immediately. By the time the mainsail was reefed and double reefed the storm was down around my ears in earnest. Frothy seas were piling up and Pagan was pitching savagely. The time had come and gone to hazard the bowsprit and doff the jib. Staying atop a heaving bowsprit in a gale is like balancing on a rolling barrel. Every time the sprit goes down, you are past your knees in swirling water. About every fourth time you come up with water in your pockets, your vest pockets. You cling like grim death to the topmost stay and work at the sail with your free hand. On a dark and stormy night, it doesn't pay to fall off. So you hold tight and work fast, but not too fast, you get careless. That's what I did. I had been out on the bowsprit several times in the Perlas, and I was approaching the jaunty stage. But sailboats are marvellous devices for impressing the need of constant vigilance. Pagan, in her own inimical way, heeled over, pitched full down, and then came up tossing her bowsprit at the sky. With the grace of a circus clown, I floundered end over end into the reaching dark waves. I fought instantly for the surface. A series of seas clouted me, knocking me sternward somewhere behind the transom. 
The bumpkin was a bare foot out of reach and I knew I must soon get hold of it or something or the next heavy roller would sweep me downwind. My fiercest swimming was barely enough to enable me to hold my own against Pagan's slow slog to windward. Seawater was impairing my vision and stifling my breath. In this desperate moment, I struck something. At first I thought it was the rudder's edge, but it was a pair of pants I was dragging astern to wash in the wake. I pulled myself by them up to the rail and clung to it for a moment while I rested. The sea gave tremendous pulls, impressing me into its unlimited power. In four years of the merchant service, I had not realised its infinite strength. From the decks of great freighters, one is on the seas but not of it. One is cradled between sturdy bulkheads of steel. One just sees the sea. When a merchant seaman gets a salty spray on his lips, it's an adventure. As I trailed in Pagan's spuming wake, too spent to pull myself aboard, I learned the need for some sort of line dragging from the stern, something to grab onto if I fell over again. After I got aboard, I went to the bowsprit and wrestled in the jib. But before doing so, I lay on the poop, staring somberly at the retreating columns of the sea. Like brutes, they ran from under Pagan, growling into the night. It's natural that I reflected on what could have happened. The danger for the lone sailor is what I had just escaped. I had been lucky. Next time, I might not be so lucky. I felt a close part of my boat, an inseparable part of it, in the battle with the hungry sea. I wondered if I would have begun this trip had I known of the actual uncertainties to be facing me, as I was seeing them now. Yes, I would, I concluded. What I was doing was fun. It had thrills. Despite the danger, I loved it. There was an appeal that every man feels, the appeal to adventure. And besides, it was taking me to the one girl in the world. The morning of the fourth day out was like any other, except for one thing. Daylight found me standing east of south, bent slightly before the wind, making laggard time. As usual, there was something untoward about the sky, but that was nothing more than I was learning to expect. I had been deep reefed the night before. To make the most of the day, I had risen early and hoisted full sail, but it was useless. The wind was falling steadily off to a calm under a leaden sky. I cranked up my talkative engine and ran over two hours before I came upon a slight breeze. It was southwest as usual and mild enough to fill my sails, but faintly. During these first five days, I was in the process of learning celestial navigation, which heretofore I had been too crowded with tasks to get to. While learning the celestial, I figured my daily progress by dead reckoning and using the bubbles rushing off the end of the keel as an indication of my speed through the water. So far, I had estimated my gait to be a modest seven knots, placing me approximately halfway to the Galapagos. At 10am, I found a new interest. A great, blunt-faced shark was lazing alongside Pagan. He eyed me with tiny pig's eyes and sidled quickly in to thwack the build strakes with his ponderous body. Seeing and hearing this activity of sharks was an old story to me. Many times in the night or day I have heard them thump the planking. They do it to scratch themselves or maybe they are vengeful. The first time I ever heard it was when near Sebago and down below asleep. I was awakened by a sinister thump which shivered the boat. I bolted to deck thinking I had struck a reef because I wasn't sure of my position. My first thought was that I had come about and run back into shore, but mostly I thought of a reef. 
On deck, I could discern nothing. The air was static and overcast. Pagan was scarcely swaying. For a long time, I was perplexed. Then, from an oblique angle, a silver wake of phosphorus marked the track of an approaching object. At my very feet, it banged into the side, scraped eerily a few feet, and then slithered away. It was a shark. I couldn't have that. Pagan's planks were only one inch oak, and they were 26 years old. Too many back scratchings by hulking sharks, and I would be swimming in my bunk. I broke out a spear, and when the big old shark lumbered in, I reefed it into him. With a startled twist, he broke my hold and plunged speedily. Lost one good spear. After that, I tied a bowie knife to an oar, and when they ranged near, I gave them a tweak in the ribs with six inches of cold steel. But to return, the shark which filliped Pagan's hull that morning of the 23rd was a whopper. I couldn't help but marvel at him. He was all shark. He had the swagger of a brute bully. He was half the length of Pagan and had teeth the size of fingers. When I saw those staggered, twisting teeth, I wanted them to show what I had seen. I wanted Mary to see that crushing jawbone to hold it in her hand. I brought my heavy sport reel and pole on deck and attached my largest steel shark hook. I baited it with a fat yellow jack partly gnawed at by Flotsam and Jetsam. When the shark came near, I dangled it before him and dragged it away before he could look over it. A simple bit of classroom psychology which, as it wetted him, angered him. Next time I nuzzled it at him, he arrogantly swept at it with his jagged mouth agape. I heaved back with all the strength I had. The hook lodged unmistakably in his bold jaw and with the burn of cold steel he tensed, then splashed about with a startling suddenness roiling the water, sending a wave against the planking, and made off to Beamwood. Thrashing in agitation with his slow main strength, he battled away from the boat, making the reel hum. When he ended his run of sixty yards, he turned on the hook and flailed the surface, gleaming silvery as he twisted in foam. I braced myself against the lashed tiller for a ringside view of the most fascinating struggle I had ever seen. The massive thing tore at the surface of the water, bending violently from U-shape to S-shape, champing viciously. Sometimes he appeared astern, then on the bow, always with a smear on the quiet sea. He turned on his back and thrashed fitfully, or spun in great full circles abeam and close aboard, followed by his pilot fish. At one time, he was more than a hundred feet down, straight under me, so deep in fact I could see nothing in the limpid water. His most spectacular effort came about a half hour later, after he had been hooked. He had fought the line to its end, dead astern. With dorsal fin cleaving the surface, he sped in full fury around the boat, thrashing mightily as he went. Spray shot above him, and a long wake rolled behind him. He ended his circular run, paused a second, then sped fifty feet toward the quarter, swirled about, and raced away as though he thought he would wrench his head off with the impending shock at the line's end. Barely before he reached the line's end, he thrust himself from the water, and twisting on his back, he sent a shiver from head to tail that, had the line grown taut, even if it were bolt rope, would have snapped like spaghetti. After that, his defiance fell completely away. He struggled only pettily as I towed him to the rail. The teeth I saw were unbelievable. They lay in two uneven rows, each two inches long and thicker than a pencil. They jutted at rakish angles, looking unmercifully sharp. 
they were wielded by a jaw mammoth enough to crush bone. My envy of his power, coupled with the animal instincts of the victor, induced me to lean over the rail and punch him in the nose. I found it about as hard as Pagan's decks. The great jaw, the jagged teeth, they were fascinating. But how to get them? My wicked intuition that all was well prodded me. Pull him aboard, cut his head off, boil the flesh away. It's simple. Flotsam and Jetsam, with paws on the rail, could smell the fishy stench of the beast's breath and were fidgeting and mewing eagerly for a feast. I decided to pull him aboard. First, I naively tried to lift him up by direct pull, but only budged him scantily. He weighed hundreds of pounds. I fastened the main halyard to the gaff hook fitted to his gill and with desperate heaves dragged him about an inch at a time over the transom into the cockpit. What a monster! His head lay in the cockpit and his tail hung over the stern. He stirred faintly. I took the hatchet and buried it in his spine to end his tremors. A spurt of blood sprayed over me. At the same moment, the big body quivered violently. Flotsam and Jetsam went racing to the bow. I watched them. I heard a resounding scuffle and saw my tiller splintered loose at the rudder post go flying into the sea. All hell broke loose around me. The great shark came completely to life, threw himself in a wild assault. With great sweeps of his tail and butts of his head, he swept my legs from under me, almost knocking me overboard. The great tail was pounding up and down like a sledgehammer, splintering, slamming, erasing. The gas tank hatch disintegrated in a flash and the brazed copper tank went flat, spilling its load into the bilge. I clung to the rail, horror-stricken. The cockpit combing rumbled, shattered and flew at me and if I hadn't ducked, it would have gone down my throat. In the meantime, the hatchway sliding door had been popped through to the cabin floor and the rear porthole cracked. The bottom of the cockpit was giving way. Pagan was bouncing as though pounded by great fist blows. I darted as close as I dared, grabbed up my hatchet and chomped away at the heaving spine. Again he set to beating with sinuous motions. The partition between the engine compartment and the cockpit screamed and split away. The cockpit deck itself broke through, the gasoline drums rumbled into the engine compartment and the shark lay head down on the motor. I jumped in and struck again, burying the blade and burying it again. The destruction went on. Pagan was being blasted apart before my eyes. I hacked with the hatchet like a wild woodcutter. I opened gashes in the head and in the back. I had chopped his dorsal fin half away. Still he mauled my boat. I was afraid he would work his way into the cabin and rip it down or endanger the mast. I struck the harder. I went after him like a madman, blood bespattered and desperate. He mangled the engine with side movements of his head, bending the spark plugs down and tearing the wiring away. He fell beside the motor, threw himself around athwartships and lying on the propeller shaft, throbbed till it bent out of line. I was terrified lest he should work his way against the ribbing and smash the hull open. I lay on my side atop the engine, eased close and notched a great hole in his stomach and lower jaw. He jumped spasmodically. I moved after him, lost in the bloody, death-dealing strokes. I sidled closer, drawing my legs up so that I could fit into the confined space and turned more on my side to apply all my strength. But I was hardly nicking him. But it suddenly didn't matter. He gaped at the mouth and lay still. I lay for a long time beside him, watching him, hoping he wouldn't move, because if he had, I would have been in his way 
and too tired to shift. Everything about me was either smashed or coated red. I was caked with blood. Before I could consider getting the battered carcass over the side, I had a few jobs to do. I had to pump gallons of gasoline, battery acid and clotted blood from the bilges. Then I washed the gore from the decks, cabin, planking and ribbing inside. After that, I cleared away the splintered and broken lumber, piling it all in the cabin. The cockpit was a gaping hole. In the midst of it, the kittens were growling hungrily over the shark, chewing tastily with the corners of their mouths. I cut them a sizable meal and placed them with it on the forescuttle. Cutting into the shark's stomach, I found a motley of tragic creatures which had wholly or partly contributed themselves to his meals. Two whole swid, a large Spanish mackerel, a mass of predigested small fry, the yellow jack I had baited him with, and several chunks of flesh and bone torn evidently from a very large fish. After such a contest to subdue the shark, I considered his jawbone more a prize than ever. I cut his head off and later cleaned and scraped the bones and yellow teeth, a gruesome sight. To heave the carcass over the side, I had to cut it into two pieces and tussle with it by main strength. As to the wreckage, most of my spare time for the next two weeks was spent in rebuilding the stern. Because of the shark, I added another moral to my list. Don't haul sharks aboard. The engine was useless unless I turned back to Panama to have it repaired. As I look back now, I realise I should have turned back and put it in at the mechanical division in Balboa for the work. In the long run, I would have saved time. Two, I probably would have had a much hastier and most uneventful and dull trip across the Pacific. The principal reason I didn't do an about-face was the state of my exchequer. It was low, only $25, and that wouldn't pay the docking fee. Also, my navigation by dead reckoning indicated I was making from 80 to 100 miles a day. I expected to be in the Galapagos in a week. Once there, I wouldn't need an engine. The southeast trade winds, I was told, begin there, and with their power and consistency, motor power is unneedful. So I bore on, strictly under sail. Chapter 8. Overboard There is one great hazard, above all, in single-handed sailing, as I have learned, and that is, if you should topple over, there is no one to turn the boat about and pick you up. This was always before my mind, and I was forever cautious to guard against it. The day after the shark battle, I rigged a lifeline of about 60 feet, which I dragged astern, something to grab onto if I should fall over. Sometimes I bent a hook to its end, baited with a stripping of white rag and caught a fresh meal for the crew and me, or I tied on a dirty pair of pants or a shirt to launder themselves in the wake. I used it also for a log line to indicate my speed, Primarily, though, its purpose was that of a lifesaver, in case I should fall over. But one morning, even my lifesaver nearly left me afloat on the sea. The sun was barely up before a tumult of wind was down on me from the southwest. The sea picked up into a churlish, slapping hand and I was banging into the teeth of it. The mainsail and staysail were reefed and I hesitated about pulling the jib, thinking conditions would abate. Getting dunked and even dragged off the bowsprit now and then wasn't discouraging any longer. Pagan's bowsprit was too long, about seven feet, and very small around. 
Taking in the jib in a gale was an activity for which I was never able to formulate an exact process. Never once did I doff it satisfactorily, so to the end I was practicing with it. But to get it in, I usually proceeded something like this. First, I crawled out and loosened the lanyard. I crawled back and slacked the halyard a foot or two, dropping the sail. Out again to snap loose a couple of hanks, pull the clue in and pack it behind the rail at the forepeak. Slack away at the halyard again, unsnap several clips and pull in more of the sail from the grasping water and stow it on deck. Invariably, I always left the jib to the last minute before tugging it in because it was clumsy to handle. It made little difference whether I grappled with it in a mild gale or a full one. On this morning of high wind, I was preparing myself for a bout with the jib by the usual cursing and swearing beforehand. When I got out on the bowsprit, I found that the turnbuckle of the stay was almost unscrewed. I twisted it by hand to tighten it, but must have turned it backwards. Suddenly, it parted. I grabbed a handful of the sail and hung to it as the wind filled in. The next moment, I was in mid-air, dangling from the billowed sail. I was 15 feet up and the same distance off the beam. I had a death's grip on the sail luff and I was wondering if I would be thrown too far out to swim back if I should let go. I decided to hang on. Suddenly the sail spilled its wind and I swung inboard, crashing into the mast. Before I could think to let go, I was blown back into the air again. The wind was whipping at the sail. I was being shaken back and forth as a terrier shakes a rat. Then the sail slipped loose from the stay, lost its wind and folded as it splashed onto a sea. The knotted halyard end caught in the block and I was towed astern. I was clinging to the stiff sail and wrestling with it as I clung, trying to gather it into a bundle, hoping I could somehow save it by gaining the deck with it. The canvas resisted stubbornly, then the halyard slipped through, leaving me adrift. I had only the sail to hold on to. Pagan moved away. I had the sail in a close grip and swung to the lifeline astern, but sea slime and small rubbery sea animals had grown to it, and hanging to it while clinging to the sail was like holding on in a slippery pig contest. I was determined to save the jib. My spare jib had been blown out in the storm off San Jose. The one I was fighting to save was my last. I needed it badly. A jib is a vital sail when working to windward. In a minute, I knew that fighting my way up the slimy rope with the sail still in hand was impossible. I managed to edge a few feet ahead, only to be thrown back by the wash of a swell. I was deeply mindful of the cruel steel shark hook at the line's end. When I stopped to rest, I found that the line was slipping steadily through my hands. Not all the pressure of my grasp would counter the drag. The hook was near my feet and threatening to snag them. I was slipping helplessly. The sea pulling on the sail was sliding me back and back. The sail was bundled loosely on my stomach and I freed my hold on it and let the water devour it. I hated to do it, but what could I do? Pagan, double reefed and healing deeply as she pushed into the teeth of the rising wind, had a plucky look about her partly denuded spars and exposed hull as her trim lines battered the rough edges of the swelling seas 30 feet ahead of me. She was wreathed in spray. I could hear the bow cleave the oncoming rollers. I started the long haul up the slimed over line from handhold to handhold, fighting each sea and the bubbling wake. I crawled onto deck and lay watching the churning seas, crested with foam, racing away to the horizon, rumbling like trains as they went. Lying there, thinking morbidly over what might have happened, 
I noticed, as my eyes wandered astern, with each sea, a ripple on the water's surface. I could see that it was my sail, and that somehow it was fouled with the end of my lifeline and towing behind. I gathered in the line, hoping the sail wouldn't disentangle. It didn't. When it neared the transom, I saw that the shark hook had barbed the sail at the bolt rope. One chance in hundreds. I later entered the occurrence in the log as taking in the jib the hard way. Well, that's the end of this episode of Rare Nautical Reads. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any aspirations to get out on the water yourself, find out what it's like to get beyond the horizon, out of sight of land, go over to spartanoceanracing.com. That's the company that I started seven years ago, which gives sailors of all ages, all backgrounds, and all skill levels the opportunity to get onto 60 and 80 foot boats with professional crew and find out how to safely and effectively take on a long distance offshore passage. If you can't get out on the water, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner and there you'll find all the podcasts, you'll find blogs, you'll find gear reviews and also the Spartan online seamanship training syllabus, which we've been working on now for over a year. This means every month we put out a 45 minute to one hour video, very nitty gritty, very in detail, looking at exactly how you complete tasks on the boat, how systems work, how to navigate electronic gear, dealing with problems, fixing things, the engine, it's all in there. Um, the last, I guess, is YouTube. If you go over to YouTube forward slash The Mariner, also lots of stuff going on there and lots more of the video blogs there when we're out at sea moving around in these boats and you can see what we're up to. So don't let it just be in the stories. Connect with us on social media, connect with us um, on the water and make it a reality for yourself. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, I hope you're safe and sound and look forward to sailing with you soon. Cheers. Cheers.